I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Kirsten Carroll, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you, Mark. Nice to be here. Lena Lipsis, we're going to talk about... Um, describe your product. So as the name suggests, lanolin, lanolips has got lanolin as an ingredient at its heart. Um, so lanolin is what I consider to be the best skincare ingredient in the world um, and it's something that I grew up with and I know very well. It's like a core memory of my childhood. Um, it's a natural oil that comes from the wool of the sheep and sheep are shorn every year. They have to be shorn and and the process of the wool washing after that is it's like a byproduct of that wool washing process. So the wool will end up like in your chair fabrics and your carpet on your back and then the oil, the lanolin can end up in industrial machinery or it can end up in skincare if it's the right quality level. It was the smell of my childhood. It was the skincare that was uh, we always used. My grandfather was the farmer. My father is a professor of genetics and um, molecular biology and he always taught me the molecular structure of lanolin mimics human skin oils more so than anything you can use on your skin, whether it be a plant oil or a synthetically produced oil you cannot replicate how amazing lanolin is. So I always use lanolin and then I ended up um, in, in beauty and skincare years later in marketing and I worked with the world's all the world's best skincare brands, the luxury brands, you name it, I worked with them. And after nearly 10 years, I realized my lips were still dry <laughs> and nothing had actually worked as well as this lanolin I'd used. And I, I realized that no one had been using it, like no cool brand had been using it. And it was kind of vilified. It was kind of put on the shelf in the corner. Um, and I realized, number one, I became this fire in my belly to bring it back and hero it like I felt like it should be. But also it was a huge opportunity that everyone had been afraid of this ingredient. And um, it was the very famous, everyone knows lanolin still and yet no one was using it and that to me was just a, a huge opportunity. So that's how um, that was kind of the fire in my belly that got it started um, and it remains today, the fight of my obsession with the ingredient. Why was lanolin vilified so to speak or, you know, why do people put crap on it? Like, um, Well, it was one of the original skincare ingredients ever to be used and I think, you know, it's a, it's a mix of things. People just assume technology made progress, made things better, therefore the old things didn't work as well. Um, but probably the biggest thing it was um, there was some old research back in the 60s and 70s which um, showed lanolin to cause allergic reactions on on skin. But what has emerged recently is, I mean, it was completely debunked, but also it was pesticides left in lanolin that wasn't being purified.
purified properly. There was a huge amount of pesticides used in the 80s and 70s in farming, really strong pesticides, and it was that that was causing sensitivity. So, But it just had this bad um, hangover of that um, image and therefore formulators would leave it out and brands would be afraid and it became this self-fulfilling cycle of lanolin-free being put on um, on packaging, um, so therefore people assumed it was bad. So, and I knew because I'd been in PR and marketing, it was a communication problem and that could be easily solved. So that's what I've been doing in the last 15 years is educating people, explaining people, showing people. I mean, if you look at when I was doing my original research into lanolin and I found the different grades and I found medical grade lanolin and I said to my sisters, a doctor, like, can you look at this? Why is it called medical grade? And she's just shrugged and said, it's in every surgical ward of every operating theatre we go into. It's used on open wounds. It's used in um, nursing mothers. Newborn babies can ingest it. I was like, this is crazy. Like, Newborn babies can ingest this. Yeah, therefore, skincare companies are saying it's bad. Like it's it's a disconnect. So it was really my opportunity to solve that disconnect and talk to people about it and show them the data and talk to them about medical grade. And I have yet to find someone I haven't been able to talk around. So medical grade means um, someone's assessed it or, or someone's actually ticked off its um, provenance, in other words, where it was grown, so to speak, on a sheep's paper, which part of Australia, for example, and was there pesticides in the soil, et cetera. So you can see the provenance of, of medical grade, which means all the things that people vilified it for no longer will be relevant. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Well, medical grade, when it comes to lanolin, um, means it, it passes some specific tests with level of pesticides, level level of purity. Um, it's very, very technical and therefore it is deemed safe for medical use. Um, so the minute it's past that, I mean, there's nothing that anyone can say is unhealthy for a normal human skin. You obviously had to go into searches because you had some fundamentals around your upbringing around the benefits of lanolin as a kid. Then you revisit it down the track because you saw an opportunity. But how did you go about educating yourself? So I um, started with, I, th- I guess, two main sides. One was exploring the source of who purifies it and who actually um, supplies lanolin to skincare companies and speaking to those companies about the different grades that they had offered and how they got to that grade. Um, And then on the other side, I did speak to my father who's worked in the academic world for 40 years and he had access to a lot of research papers that you wouldn't be able to find generally. And he downloaded a whole bunch of research on lanolin in in the use of newborn babies and skincare. And it was all there. It was all in black and white, how it had been debunked and how it was just this total myth. The godfather of dermatology, a guy called Albert Kligman wrote a paper. It's basically called the myth of lanolin allergy. Um, And and then it was um, just rechecking the data and rechecking my findings as I went along the journey. But once I got to these research papers, I realised it was in every hospital. I realised it was a nursing cream for babies and had been for 30 years. My job was done. That part was ticked off. Do you think it's important to find that person and say, this is cool, it's fine, here's a tick? Yeah, pretty much. I think if you're saying anything scientific-based whatsoever, you need to find someone else to, preferably someone external with no financial interest that's not paid to do it. Not your dad. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, but look, there's a lot of people who can endorse things. There's a lot of faux doctors out there that will do anything for a buck and that that's rampant and it works and that will always be there. Um, but I had been in PR and I had seen a lot of that and that's exactly what I didn't want to do. Yeah. So for me, finding really independent people that had no financial vested interest to give me those touch points was actually really valuable. But yes, in answer to your question, if you don't have that science background, which I didn't, 
absolutely you need to get it. You can't just sit there and talk about something you don't know. But it doesn't mean you can't work it out yourself, by the way. I mean, it, no. it just means what does the marketplace think about your claim? And generally speaking, the marketplace is going to say, well, is she a doctor? Is she qualified? Or, you know, I mean, does she have a PhD in this stuff? I don't mean a medical doctor, but whatever. And the marketplace will mark you down in terms of your brand uh, attributes of your product unless the market's cruel, unless you can, you're from PR background, unless you can actually get some independent to endorse it, who has cred. Yeah. And how did you find that person like or group of people? Did you go to universities? Did you go, where, where do you find these people, these um, individuals? I called the head of dermatology in Australia myself. Um, I The research papers had all the doctors on it already. Um, I worked with a, a cosmetic scientist who helped the original formulations. He kind of knew what he was doing in that respect. That was it. Yeah, so that, that's an interesting thing. So you got an idea. Um, you, you think I want to use lanolin in a product, but it's not that easy. You just that's not just a matter of going get get in a sheep and we'll go to the shooting yeah. shed and grabbing the, <laughs> the lanolin and squeeze it into a tube. It's a bit like food. You have to get a in case of food. You have to get food scientists. In case yeah. of your in your case, you have to get a cosmetic scientists. Yeah. Um, they and they sort of formulate this stuff for you, don't they? You tell them what you want them to smell like or feel yeah. like. To explain that process. How, so, how do you go about working that crap out? It's pretty hard. Sure, I couldn't even Google it. Like I was like, I had the first idea back in two thousand and three. I used like yellow pages. I contacted some manufacturers, uh, some skincare manufacturers, and generally a manufacturer, a good contract manufacturer, whether it's skincare, food, whatever, they will have on staff the science section. They will have their lab department. They will have people who are paid and have the knowledge to formulate for you. Um, and in my case, I had I had a vested interest to use the ones that were going to do the manufacturing for me to make sure the formula was stable. And um, and what does that mean, stable? Oh, it, so if you buy, in particular with natural skincare, if you don't want to stuff it with preservatives, it's really similar to food. You have to it has to sit on a shelf for X amount of time. So it must have a and shelf not go life. Off has to have a shelf for life. For the retailer because retailers aren't going to stock Correct. it if Correct. it's going to die. That's exactly right. And um, back sort in the early days of date. natural skincare, you'd buy Jalique or what, even Jalique would, you know, you'd buy it and it would stink. It would go off. It has use by date sort of thing. Yeah, they have a use by date. So and use by dates for skincare without preservatives should be like three months max. Right. Um, but retailers don't take that anymore. You have to have like minimum, for example, three years. Um, you, shelf yes, life. you've got to live for three years Correct. on the shelf. And you have to have tests to support that. You have to have stability tests done, which they do under elevated heating conditions in an oven for three months. They keep it at a certain temperature for three months, which is designed to replicate the environment of being on a shelf for three years. Yeah, the worst environment, the worst possible environment. Correct. Was, uh, an environment where bacteria love to hang out. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so you you have to put your products through that stability test and it has to pass um, before you are – and then you get the paperwork which shows you that it's passed and then you can get it registered. And in particular in a lot of countries in the world there's a really complex registration process now, very monitored, that so you can't sell your goods in that country unless it's gone through this registration process. Is it like TGA? Therapeutic yeah, goods really similar. Yeah, yeah, so you you have to. So you, generally speaking, though, the cosmetic scientists uh, they take that process on for you. They take you through the process. Correct. Yeah. There are third party people that you can appoint to do it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I generally worked with the in house lab departments because, as I said, I wanted them to have a vested interest in making sure this formula was commercially viable and that it would um, stand up because they're the one that would be making it in the end. 
So it's not that, and you know, I'm making it sound easier than it really is because it's not about just ringing up a cosmetic scientist and say, oh, excuse me, um, I'd like to use lanolin in a, in a lip um, um, could you please give me a few samples and I'll take it off? I mean, it's, it takes a, quite a while. You've got to taste it, smell it, feel it, let it sit on your lips for a while. Apart from all that other stuff, you, all the compliance stuff, you've got to be able to make sure it lasts for a period of time. And when you went to the cosmetic scientist and or the manufacturer, if they provided the cosmetic scientist, sometimes that happens, um, how did you formulate this? I mean, do you go and sit in a meeting with 10 people, yeah, dudes? that was really hard. Chemistry? So interestingly, you talked about, the formulation side because a vast majority of skincare brands you see out there, in particular like celebrity brand endorsements, they have these on-shelf formulations that you just buy. They already exist. They've been used for years. And by you repackage it. And they put in one little thing to yeah, make yeah. it their own and they repackage it. Yeah. That's rampant. That yeah. is vast majority of what you'd see. Because it's more shelf. about marketing as opposed Correct. to product. Correct. That's exactly right. Um and the problem with lanolin is no one had been using it. So even if I wanted to use an off-the-shelf formulation when I first started, it didn't exist, um, which is kind of how I ended up. My first product is just lanolin. It's 100% lanolin. It required no formulation. I just needed to find and, and work with the best lanolin in the world. Um, but the way I worked is I came to the scientists with the brief. As much lanolin as possible, everything has to have a reason to be there. I want some pigment with my tinted balms and that's pretty much all I want. And they came back to me, this first guy I was working with, and he actually said, well, look, no one's really worked with lanolin of that level for quite some time. What would be much easier if we take this formulation and we put in maybe 2 or 3% lanolin and then we can say it's lanolin without it being lanolin. It's like, that's like <laughs> not the point of this whole entire brand. So I did go around in circles for quite a few years actually with the challenges. Like you've described, it is much easier to take formula off the shelf, rebadge it and just chuck it out there. Um, but I think, you know, that's a really short-term strategy and I think the the reason we've stood the test of time is our formulas really are amazing. And ultimately, if you don't have a good formula, it's going to be really hard at one point. I've sort of had a little bit to do with this in the food science area and they do the same thing. And pretty much like a lot of protein drinks you drink today, just off-the-shelf protein drinks, reformulated, yeah. repackaged and sold to you with a celebrity sitting in front of it. Yeah. Um, and I guess what you're saying to me is the same thing applies to cosmetics. When you were doing this and you had to, you said, look, I want this all to be lanolin. Did the lanolin come from China or did the lanolin come from New Zealand or did the lanolin off New Zealand sheep or did it come from Australian sheep? Do you know, can you sort of say, look, it came from, I don't know, Wagga Wagga or something like that? I mean, how far down the- The providence. The, the, yeah, how yeah. far down the, the, the chain of title do you go? Yeah, so I get asked that a bit actually and that's a really important question and provenance is very important. So I'm number one- because my grandparents were sheep farmers, like the providence of being Australian and New Zealand sheep was really important to me and still is. Um, even now we could save two-thirds of our cost of goods if we went with something that wasn't guaranteed that, but we do that. And that's sort of part of my um, ethical commitment to the company. Um, but the way that the wool industry works in reality, and I know it because I've seen it, is the shearers go around to the all the farms once a year. They travel around. They in just, Australia. In me, Australia, yeah, yeah. sorry. And they shear the whole flock of sheep for two or three days. The commercial farmers probably have, and there are shearing teams you can just hire, and they come and they do the shearing for two or three days. They get put in huge bales and they go to auction. And once they do that, with lanolin already on the, with yeah, they get auctioned up as bales of wool with the lanolin on it. Is the lanolin on the sheep after it's shorn? It's an oil that comes out of their skin yep. that coats all the wool, and it's super sticky. It's designed historically. Um, 
the what's the word the genetic reason or the um, evolutionary, natural, evolutionary reason. Thank yeah. you. Uh, was designed to waterproof them yep. and keep them warm. Right. They're not meant to be in Australia. Um, sheep are not Aussie, native Aussie animals. That's why no. we don't see them up much up north. We see them mostly down south. Yeah, and, and they the get hot place. and that's why you have to shear them too. Anyway, yep. so sheep husbandry is a critical part. They, they rely on humans. Humans rely on them. It's like this we've evolved together as animals. So, Are we talking about merinos, by the way? Uh, we're talking about all sheep. All sheep. All sheep. So there's no one better sheep. I'm Merino will produce more. Merinos produce more wool. Yep. So they're better. They have a better yield. Of, in terms of wool. Oh, in terms of wool. What about lanolin? And also lanolin because right. there's more uh, fleece right. to coat. Right. So the oil sits on the wool and small fact, I'm getting really nerdy here when it comes to lanolin, but it's a super, super sticky in its raw form um, absorbent structure and that's what also makes it an amazing moisturiser because it absorbs hydration and keeps it into your skin. Um, but what it also means is a truck, a tractor that's driven past that sheep last week, the exhaust fumes from that truck is sitting, we'll floats across and settles on the sheep and it's sitting in that sheep as sheep's wool as well. Yep. Um, so there's all sorts of things. I mean they found – they found soot from the Gulf War fires in sheep in Mongolia. Like that's the kind of thing wow. that Lanolan holds on to forever. So the forever, so the, forever until yeah. it's absolutely yeah. You can't wash it out, so to speak. Well, you can once it's removed from the sheep, right? So, um, but it does take a lot of uh, complex refining to get that all the impurities out. So, which is the reason why you stick to pardon the pun lanolin <laughs> that comes from per- parts of Australia where there's less exposure to. Yeah, that's one of the big reasons. So um, the use of strong pesticides has changed, is very, you know, very controlled in Australia and has been for quite some time. So one of the big reasons we use Australian and New Zealand wool is to avoid all those nasty pesticides and chemicals in the farming processes. Yeah, which gets sprayed around the joint. Which gets sprayed around the joint. Yep. Um, And it sticks in the wool forever. So the wool gets put into these big bales and they get sent to these wool auctions and then the companies who wool trade will buy bales and bales and it just gets mixed up from that point. So the actual providence um, in a mass manufacturing scale is virtually impossible to maintain. Um, there are Because like, it gets blended. It just basically gets blended. And you don't know where my st- your stuff is or the no, one you want is. You really don't. Yeah. You really don't. Um, if I really wanted to, like you could get, like there are what they call wool scourers. They're the people who do the original washing of the wool to get the original lanolin off. They don't purify it. They just get the original kind of industrial grade lanolin off. There are like one or two wool scourers left in Australia. So technically if you wanted to just sheep your sh- shear your sheep, get the wool scourer, then you'd know that that lanolin is your lanolin. But the problem is the technology doesn't exist in Australia to purify that lanolin to medical grade. Right. It doesn't exist here. So unfortunately the way our lanolin, um, the way our supply chain works is we uh, we buy our lanolin after it's been sent, to, shown in Australia, sent overseas for um, purification and come back again. But it's still, we know it's from Australia. You know it's from Australia. 100%. Yeah. So no, do you use New Zealand or? Australia and New Zealand Australia, together. New Zealand, yeah. That also gets me. And, and, and the objective here is to be able to make a claim or not necessarily a claim or a medical, not necessarily a medical claim or cosmetic claim or some sort of health claim that at least it came from Australia. It doesn't mean it's, um, you know, you, you saw every stage of it coming off the shoes back and it ended up in your jars, but at least you can say it is Australian based. And, Correct. Yeah. And, 
then it comes back to Australia as medical grade. Is, is that what you're saying? It, yep. it is medical grade, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. And yes. Uh, do you then sort of say, well, I want this smell to it or I want this uh, yeah. colour to it and uh, maybe add one or two little things like vitamin E or something? I don't know. Yeah. When you do that, who owns the intellectual property? Does the manufacturer own the intellectual property or do you own the intellectual property? Because I saw a case where there was a well known protein company which got a manufacturer to to make the protein. They use their food scientists internally to design the protein product. And then when they sold this protein business for quite a lot of money, uh, the buyer had to go and buy the manufacturer because the manufacturer made a claim and said that they owned yeah. the, the formula. They own the IP in intellectual yeah. property. Is that a thing? Yeah. yeah. It's a rookie mistake, by the way. It's it? a really yeah, dumb yeah, mistake. Yeah. Is that a thing in your industry too? Yes. God, yes. I mean, I direct our formulations very closely. So You personally direct yeah. it? Yeah. Mm. So, so you can say, say you own the formula? Yeah, pretty much. And I, but more, more importantly, it's a condition of doing business with me that we own all our formulations. So you say to the upfront cosmetic person, yep. chemist or whatever they are, and the and or the manufacturer, look, I'm prepared to pay extra. Correct. In order to own the intellectual property around this whole thing. Correct. I say we will not formulate with you unless there's an agreement in place where we own that IP. Yeah, and you're right. It is a rookie error. But actually, it's amazing the number of people who've made the error. Yeah, I can see how it's very easy to happen, but it is. Pretty basic. I mean, yeah, it's very easy to happen. Though. I mean, we've all we you know we do have two or three formulations where the manufacturers like, well, we kind of they're not important formulations, so it's okay. It's happened to yeah, us. Too. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't manufacture, you don't own your own no. factory, no. So you manufacture it, or they manufacture rather on your formula, and then you have got your product. Yeah. And this product was launched when? We went to market in two thousand and nine. Right. And how did it go? How were you received? It went crazy. Yeah. How did you go? Like online? Was it done online or through no, stores? No, online didn't exist. It was um, we, through our distributor at the time, um, had our opening accounts were like Priceline, David Jones, Maya. So they do the sell-in for us six months in advance. And I, it was very successful. And I think because I think fundamentally like retailers love new, right? They'll take a punt. It's actually yeah. not that hard to get something that's, genuinely new and interesting into a retailer. But it's got to be new and interesting though. It's got to be new and interesting. And the people buy got to say, I love it. And then people have to buy it. The experience so has to be good. It's not easy. Like it's not like, but yes, if you've got something new and interesting and quirky, you'll peak interest. So we had the retailers set up and we launched and I think the, the biggest comments I got immediately, like it went crazy and the biggest comments I got was exactly kind of what I was hoping for. All these women and men, they're like, used to use lanolin 30 years ago. Where has it been? I cannot believe it's finally back. This is amazing. And that's exactly what I kind of had the gut feeling for. There was no data really around that time, but I just knew that people had no idea why I had the cosmetics industry had vilified it. No one cares that much, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were just like awesome lanolin. I had emails from the first email I ever got was a woman who ran a tracking company in Bendigo and she's out in the cold. Her hands are always cold. They're always cracked. And she's like, thank you very much. This is lanolin is the only ingredient that's ever helped me. Thank God you brought it back. Do you go out and find a broker who brokes so to speak, that into those shelves? No, we had a distributor who... Yeah. Um, so distributor being what? What are we talking oh, about? Oh, sorry. Uh, it's like a broker. It's a broker. So they, they say we got relationships with all these Correct. shelves. And they have other brands that they deal yeah, with. Yeah. So they would sit down with a Meyer and a David Jones and show 20 different brands. This is what we're launching in the next six months. What are you going to buy? What are you going to So how would you get into their um, little, you know, Jacket, side jacket. How'd you get the into that? Yeah, how, there was a family connection at the time. You knew somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, so knew you know, I went into this industry 
knowing quite a lot of people actually and I wouldn't have done it otherwise because it's super competitive and someone who does know all the right people, they're going to beat you. Yeah. So um, we, I had a family connection on the distribution side. I had the marketing connection on or myself. I had the science connection with my family. So I was feeling pretty comfortable going into it that I was pretty well placed for success and, um, and it was. Well, we're going to get a break because we, we've taken it to where you launched your first product. But I want to talk about, as you said earlier on, how do you make sure that you're still in everybody's um, bandwidth? In other words, you keep talking to them. How do you do that? Um, how do you then build out other product lines and how do you know which product lines to build out? Because you don't only have one product line, you've got numerous product lines. How do you keep your relationships with organisations? How do you build your price point you know how do you know which price point do you want yeah um and uh how do you take this stuff overseas and and what's what's that process we just go to the break we're gonna come straight back when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm back here with Kirsten Carroll. She's the founder of Lennon Lips and a cosmetic business which has a, a variety of products, but we've been talking about her Lennon-based balm. It's interesting, uh, not just in your game, but in all sorts of games where people are trying to get on other people's shelves, in other words, Woolworths, Coles, Priceline, wherever it is, um, and they think they've got this great idea about a product and they go out and find a either a food scientist or an alcohol scientist or, a, in your case, a cosmetic scientist, and they just hand over the uh, the job because they're not going to manufacture the stuff. So they hand over the formulation and the manufacturing to somebody, and they forget to ask for who owns the formula. Yeah, uh, you said it. You you correctly described it as a rookie error, um, but it's amazing. You would be amazed at the number of people I talk to who are doing this sort of stuff or have these ideas who don't even think about this. How did you know that you have to own intellectual property? I think I came at it from a. I- wanted to create the formula myself completely anyway. Like I didn't want to just hand it over and come back with something with 30 ingredients I'd never heard of. So I wanted to put it together myself anyway. Um, But I think what I always knew was if something's too good to be true, if someone's helping you like a bit too much and they're not asking for anything. They're helping themselves. They're helping themselves. Because you just said earlier there's this shelf style product off the shelf type thing. Yeah. So probably what they do is they uh, they formulate this sort of stuff and that becomes one of their shelf products. So someone else coming along, 100%. they just say, oh, you want a landline product? Oh, we've got one up here, which is Absolutely. what we got from Kirsten, by the way. So do they disclose it to you? Do, generally speaking, has your experience been that manufacturers, and I'm not here to slag on them but because it's business, So, but do they normally disclose to you, listen, by the way, if we formulate this, we're going to own it? 
Uh, never have have any of them been upfront about the IP side of things, and that's terrible, really, because it's such an easy track to fall into. Um, but the manufacturers I choose to work with are the ones who, when I say to them, look, IP is a company policy, we own all our IP, they just say, not a problem, we make our money from making things for you, yeah. not from holding your boat to ransom. And they're the kind of partners I want to work with anyway. Yeah, the yeah. ones who get really precious about IP and a bit nasty and a bit sneaky, they're generally sneaky and nasty about other things too. Pun them, straight away. Yeah. If they're doing that, they're finding other ways to cut corners in your formulation and making money in places you don't want them to. Like there's so many other things they could be doing that you have no idea and that's the problem because you really don't know what they're doing. Yeah, because they've they got the factory and they've got all the scientists Absolutely. sitting in the background there. Correct. How do you package your stuff? Well, Function's really dictated all of those decisions for me. Like I, as much as packaging, it's packaging, having nice Packaged product was really important to make lanolin cool again, but function was more important to me. So, I for me, functional um, packaging, yeah, fa- packaging that wasn't annoying that actually worked that you could get the lid on properly. Like, a it's a hard formula, you wouldn't have, um, oh, and for example, a good natural product will oxidize with oxygen, so you cannot and should not have anything in an open pot. Um, the tube should have some aluminium layer for a barrier mechanism. Also, when you squeeze it, the air doesn't suck back into it because the oxygen is the enemy of most formulas, to be honest. Well, most things too. Well, the same goes for food and booze. Yeah, absolutely. Oxygen is and UV light. Yep. If you put yep, those well. two are the big things that deteriorate a formula. So for me, it was about making sure that those two were ticked off and then make it look good. So how did you do that? This is my dad. My dad was quite useful in this process. He he was the one who gave me some basics, basic logic. Um, but it, labs can do it for you. L- sorry, manufacturers, they have this, what they call this turnkey service. So you can go to a lab and say, I'd like you to create my formula. And I say, what else do you want me to do? Should we source your packaging? So we, should we do X, Y, Z? But you know you're going to pay more um, and have less control if they own your packaging supplier, then what? you're never going to be able to leave them. (laughs) So that wasn't something I wanted to do. So um, you find the packaging suppliers. Over time, we have a portfolio of them we work with in Australia and overseas. Um, And they're they're actually quite good too. If you ask them them the right questions, you'll get the answers you want. The problem is knowing the questions to ask about the layers of the tubes, for example. And I made mistakes. The first um, tubes we ever made um, seeped lanolin through them because lanolin eventually you wouldn't know it but it could get through plastic wow i know so we had these single layer tubes no one knew none the wiser hadn't used lanolin in formulas for years so no one had experienced this before within about a year a whole bunch of my products started to get really sticky on the shelf and we couldn't sell any of them so then you you learn about the layers like every plastic tube has what they call the evoh layer lining which stops that so inside it inside it so uh, if you look at a a, tube, a plastic tube under the microscope, you can just see these different layers of plastic and they're all designed to protect it from UV light, seeping. Um, our 101 ointment has the layer of aluminium in the middle which helps it remember, it helps bruises the tube, which stops the oxygen from being sucked in. So we, we learn a lot of it on the way with it's mistakes. When I was a kid, well. I remember right, Lenlin actually came in a, I think it was an aluminium tube. Yeah. All aluminium. In fact, toothpaste was in those the days too. The foldings tubes. The foldings tubes, correct. That in itself was um, had its own problems because over time the the, the element paint would crack as would well. crack yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the paint would crack but it would crack too like you'd see so you'd because my dad like used a, to make us turn the bottom up to make sure we got everything out oh, of the yeah. tube 
towards the end of the you know the life of this thing, um, the more you turn it up, you end up having a crack down the bottom, and when you squeeze it, this little the worms a little come worm out come yeah. out on the back on the back and the side. It was so cool. Like I remember it as a kid, I thought it was pretty good, but but obviously that's not something that's something you want to avoid. I mean, your distributors wouldn't like it, your customers wouldn't like it ultimately. Yeah, and also if that's coming out, it probably bacteria could be getting in too. So there are issues. Yep. So you had to solve all that sort of stuff. Did you use your manufacturer to do that or did you go and see somebody else? Spoke to my tube guys, my packaging suppliers about that. Um, And as I said, we also made mistakes and I learned the hard way. Um, But interestingly, I mean, if you look at aluminium tubes, they're still used. If you buy a, a behind the counter cream from a pharmacy, they're still in those tubes because they're the ones that protect the active ingredients. Right. And stop the oxygen from getting back in but they don't crack anymore because things have improved too yeah, so yeah. aluminium is less brittle now it's much more malleable things have changed a lot it was aluminium wasn't it yeah yeah i often wonder what it yeah. was because i couldn't work out what metal was so malleable yeah so soft thin uh, aluminium um but now also there's there's sort of protection protective layers inside it and they were seeping into products i recently produced a, a whiskey business and uh, and we had to obviously bottle the whiskey and get lids and we had to make sure there was no air could get into it and like you we had to make sure a light couldn't get into because white light destroys alcohol and we had to make sure that it was you know have wow well, it's got whiskey so it's alcoholic so it has a long shelf life but um yeah, it was just a punish, especially during the COVID period. Like, you know, <laughs> we couldn't get the corks because Portugal is where you get all your corks from. Uh, Portugal had wow. a problem with corks because they're, they're the ones <laughs> that have all the cork trees and then you had to send the corks to China to get the, the caps made and then the caps all came back. We had bottles made in a different place and the corks didn't fit the bottle. It was yeah. a fucking pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with the frustrations of all the things that get in the way of getting this product you've already had formulated onto the shelves? So there's a there's two sides I guess to that, and I can you're reminding me of post traumatic stress actually a number of big huge things that went wrong. Um, in the early day, like we'd done the sell into retailers. This is before we launched. We'd done the sell in. The retailers were expecting the goods to be delivered at a certain time. The tubes had arrived. We we're about to go into production. I went down to Melbourne to my then manufacturer, and they're about to fill the tubes. And I looked down at these tubes, and the way they arrived, they're kind of um, they're cylindrical and they sit down in this cardboard tray where you look down into these empty cylinders where the product goes into and then they get sealed. And I looked down the top of these tubes and I could see a very large percentage of them had plastic over the holes. So the way... Over the hole to squeeze through. Correct. <laughs> and I looked at them and I was like, what? the act? Like this tube has no hole. And um, the way they've just been made in a really sloppy way, they pour the plastic into this mould for the shoulder of the tube and they hadn't put the little stick in to make the hole stay. So the customer's going to have to cut the top off or something. Correct. And it wasn't – it was like a full thick – thing of plastic yeah. and I had to stop everything. It was just a disaster and I'm you literally want to die. You think it's all over. You think you everything's finished. You spent all the money. You you literally think it's the end. Everything like that that happens so in how the do first you get few past years. That? What well I think do? it's like you're in you're a rat in the corner and you've got nothing else to do but survive. You have to do what you need to do. So in that particular instance, you just um, demand the manufacturer in China makes them in the next two days and air freights them and within two weeks it was fixed. And it was. But you just have to scream like there's no tomorrow, threaten legal action if you have to, and just force 
the change. You have no other choice. Do you do it from Australia or do you get on an aeroplane and knock on their door say, listen, dude, Well, another it. situation I had where I had to get on a plane is we were doing a tip-on, which is when you, something goes in the front of a magazine. So we were doing this tip-on, a brand-new product we were launching. I'd done a deal with the editor of Elle magazine and the whole campaign was around this front page, front cover feature on the front cover of Elle where we had the tip-on into 60,000, 80,000, whatever. You mean the, the product itself? The product itself, oh, finished sorry, product. Sealed or whatever. Yes, yeah, so, so we were giving it. away a lip balm tube on the front yep. cover of a magazine to launch this product. Clever. And um, expensive though. And um, I, the manufacturer had made them in Melbourne. They sent up, they always send what they call retention samples where you, I check every single sample of every batch that's ever made, myself personally. I make sure the formula smells as it should, make sure everything's as it should be as part of the QC process. And the tubes came up and I squeezed it and the top popped open. The seal wasn't sealed properly. So it takes a certain amount of heat to make the plastic melt together to create a proper seal. Um, and I squeezed it and just went boop and all the balm came out and I tried the next one and the next one and they were all popping. I thought I'm about to be sued by ACP or Bauer because yeah. every lip balm on the front cover of this magazine is going to pop. Every magazine is going to be ruined. And, and not only that, every other magazine in the whole pharmacy is going to be like news agents going to be ruined because every other magazine is going to have lanolin all over it. I was like, oh, my God, this is everyone had been made. There was 80,000 of them. And um, the only option I had was I got on the plane the next morning, 6 a.m. I went to the manufacturer. Luckily, the goods hadn't been dispatched. They still had them there. And I sat there all day while they resealed every single one of those tubes. They looked terrible. The seals are like extra squeezed and melted. But I sat there while they did every single freaking one of those How do you maintain your composure in these environments? I think it's going to survival mode. I mean, look, I hate to say, but sometimes being an emotional female can really help because a lot of men don't know how to deal with that. So sometimes if you sit there and look upset and distressed, they want to help you. So you just kind of have to do what needs to be done. Play the game. To get the problem solved. Play the game. Um, Some of them respond to, I'll threaten legal action. Some of them respond to, I'm so distressed, can you help me? I mean, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. You just need to do it. Yeah, exactly. And the other side of it is I always say to people, before you start something, be really passionate about it. like really love it because when things get really hard, that's actually the fire in that belly that's there. That's what does that. That's and I remember what, that. Yeah, and that, that's what gives you the solution. That's what your body's emotional response is this fire in the belly and this passion. It will find a way out. It will solve the problem. Whereas if you don't have that, you just give up. We got into the weeds there. That was great. But now this is being sold around the world. So how the hell did you get and where are you in the world and how did you somehow make this move around the world and how did you get celebrities around the world to use your product or did they just find it in Sephora or wherever it is that you were? That's a few questions there, Mark. Um, So the way I got it into retailers around the world is I did it myself. I hopped on the aeroplanes, I banged down their doors, I got meetings. As I said, it wasn't easy, Boots, Sephora, Right. David Jones, Mecca. I mean, all the biggest retailers in the world were in. I mean, you just went knocking on the door and said, hi, I'm here. Yeah, you like, well, you email, you email, and you might know someone who knows someone to get the meeting. The trick is getting that very first meeting. But the minute you sit down with them and you show them the product and it's amazing and it sells well and you can, you've got case studies and X, Y, Z and, and they want to try something new, um, I generally get in. Um, but that part of the business is 
haven't done that for quite some time. We've had a really good distribution network now for like four or five years. So now we're in a slightly different stage. Um, but yeah, setting up the distribution channel, you can either do it the distributor way, you can appoint people to do it for you. They charge you, of course. They charge you an enormous amount of money. You yep. lose control. There's problems down the track. Um, we didn't have the margins to allow for for that anyway, even yep. if we wanted to. Because they take a big percentage. They take an enormous percentage. They yep. make all that. And then you don't know what they're doing with the stock. They channel stuff, whatever they want. They discount whatever. Um, so we always went direct. So we own all our retail relationships, which is one of our superpowers. Um, and then in terms of actually getting people to buy it and the marketing and the PR side, that had been my background. So I'd worked with agencies and known kind of, I, you know, I met with, I probably met with 500 journalists in my time to talk to them about the products and the ingredient and tell that story. And I did that myself as and well. And you have to wear the shoe leather out to do that. You yes, actually, there's uh, no other way. I mean, the amount of times I'd wake up jet lagged, I'd slept three hours and I had to dress up and like be all bright and bubbly and amazing is endless and crying and tired. I couldn't see my kids. I was on the other side of the world. I was desperately sad. Like there were so many of those moments, but I couldn't, that was the only way. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the celebrity stuff, look, we worked with a lot of makeup artists who love the product and they're the ones who generally oh, got it to celebrities. So you go find uh, a, a makeup artist who here might be, for example, um, might be doing, I don't know, Gigi Hadid. I'm just here. Well, oh, yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah. talking about Gigi Hadid, like someone very famous, but I'm talking about just here in Australia, for example. Someone's doing the voice and might be doing the makeup for um, Delta Goodrum. Correct. And you say, and you, you say the makeup artist, assuming that she or he believes in it. Um, maybe if you get that, give something to Delta, whatever the case may be. Is that that's how you do it? Yeah, we pretty much say, look, here's tubes and here's extra. If yeah. anyone loves it, just give it to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we might get emails from, you know, I got an email from a makeup artist. Years ago, she's like, Rosie Huntington-Whiteley's here for like this competitive brand. I'm using Lana on her. She loves it. Can we get her some products? Of course we got her some products. And she was one of our biggest USA advocates ever. They just fall in love with it. You make it easy for them to get access to it. You supply it, no questions asked, and they get free stuff all the time. So you kind of got to play yeah, that game. Yeah, but it's nothing. No, it's nothing. It's like, for you know, whatever it is. Just a little bit of logistics and, you know, something that costs you very little, but it makes makes sense. Yep. But I think it makes sense by getting the – it's good to get to them through the makeup artists because, I mean, as uh, as much as I hate saying this, I have been involved in those environments where I had a makeup artist when I had to do the TV series and um, her name was Lee. She was fantastic and I don't even know what she's putting on me. I wouldn't have a clue. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But I was completely in her hands. Whatever Correct. She, like I just do whatever she wanted. And if she said, "Might put this on lips," I would have put it on my lips, no problem. Yep. And in fact, she used to—I don't know what she put told us put on, but she used to put something on lips because it did something about. Um, she used to say that if um, if I put this on the lips, if I get a bit nervous in my delivery, it actually helps me from you know your lips can stick. Oh yeah. When you're speaking, because yeah. you're nervous, because your mouth dries up. Um, this is a trick that they were using. Uh, every everyone there was using it. And the first time I was on TV, I didn't know these tricks, and uh, she told me about it, and. Uh, and I, but whatever it was, she put on my lips. I would have, could have been Vaseline for all I know. I wouldn't have a faintest idea. But I just did what she said. <laughs> yeah, because they're the, yeah. yeah like, you know, they, As you said, you're in her hands. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's very clever um, using that 
environment to launch into celebrities. And then if a celebrity likes it and they love the Australian story and they love Aslanlin from Australian Sheep, there's something for them to talk about all of a sudden. You're giving them content. Correct. And the magic of it is they think they've discovered it themselves and they're yeah. not being pushed something. They're not being paid for it. Yeah. There's a, there's like a secret little girl code and passing on little secrets yeah, that yeah. you know. So that kind of happened as well, I think. You mentioned Gigi. Uh, uh, did you get she use your product? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. She's probably been our biggest celebrity that's moved the needle. I mean, Kim Kardashian's used it, but. She uses so many things, it doesn't yeah, really yeah. move the needle. But Gigi's was really authentic. I'm pretty sure it came through her makeup artist and she just had a baby. The world's eyes were on her and she did this Vogue thing on YouTube of like how I get ready for the day. And she talked about she was part of that getting ready and it was she's like selling our story for us like this product and it's really amazing and I use it here and here and here and it's all natural and it just feels fantastic and it was just like, oh, my God, <laughs> didn't pay for any of that and it was incredible. Do you monitor this stuff? Do you have media monitors, one of those monitoring organisations um, or a PR agency who is consistently looking for anybody talking about your product so that you then yeah. know how to um, take advantage of that, so yep. to speak? Yeah. So we have agencies around the world yep. that monitor our PR for us. Where to from here? What are you going to do? Um, we've only scratched the surface in America, for example. America's our biggest market now but um, it's teeny tiny from what we can do in America. So that's a huge focus for us. And then the Asian market will be next for us, so new markets. And do you have to do something different for the Asian market or do they want to do whatever the Western market's doing? I mean, how does that work? No, it's very different. You have to be really – I mean, any market is different. Even the American market's culture is different to Australia. It's interesting as a brand owner, you've obviously got things that you think are important to you, like Australia-made, Lanolin's so great, but you can't assume that every market's like that and it would be very stupid to go into any market and assume that messaging is going to resonate. So you do have to go in there and test and check. Research. Research and continually test to see what's resonating and keep pivoting towards that market. So for the Asian market, it's very unknown to us, so we'll definitely be doing a lot of cultural research. It's very interesting you should say that um, at this point because one of the mistakes I see of a lot of people in business, particularly if they're retailers, is that they think, oh, it's good for me, I like the story and I think I know how it works, that's a survey one, and then they try to sell those product features to a market, an audience, without having done the research and what what's good for you doesn't necessarily mean it's good Correct. for everybody else. I don't care. Particularly when you change cultures, Correct. culturally change. I mean you might think the Asians love the Asian market, and there might be 20 different markets in Asia too, by the way. China might be different yeah. Singapore, um, in Thailand, et cetera. But they might love Australian linen, but they might have something against sheep for some reason or something. Yeah. I don't know. You might need to sell it a different way. That's very, very interesting. I mean, well done. Congratulations. It's Thank good you. to see Australians killing it. Um, but what most people don't get is that they might be doing really well now, but they don't realise what it was like from the start and you shared with some of your stories, I'm sure you've got a hundred stories where you're about to pull your hair out and you've done it, uh, you know, with kids, et cetera, with family. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a great success. Thanks. Great Matt. story. Thank you. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley and production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.